Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I'm so excited that you're here. I love this. I love talking to my friends. Me too. It's so much fun. I'm so excited. <laughs> so <laughs> how about you start out with introducing yourself with your name and who you are and kind of what you do? Yeah. So I'm Jazz Rasmussen. I'm from the Gold Coast, Australia. Um, and I'm currently a student at Griffith Uni. So I'm majoring in marine science, biochem and molecular biology. My third year now. So getting towards the end, which is exciting. And what you forgot to say is that you are also quite possibly one of the coolest humans ever with what you do. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, that's so nice <laughs> to say. But uh, yeah, I've been so lucky to have heaps of different like volunteering opportunities on the side. So I've been able to have some pretty cool experiences during my undergrad. So I'm pretty lucky in that yeah. way. For the stage you're at in your career, you definitely have some big things under your belt, which is so exciting. It's going to open up so many more opportunities also. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for what the future holds too. <laughs> but before we jump into where you are now, where did it all start? When did you fall in love with the ocean and just wildlife in general? Yeah, so it's such a defining moment and I can remember it so clearly. Um, but my dad came from a small town in North Queensland. And so we spent all our summers with um, the Great Barrier Reef as as our backyard and so you know lazing around in these fringing coral reefs with sea turtles and marine life is really where my passion was just ignited um and my mum is amazing she's been a wildlife rescuer and carer since I was five so she was the main inspiration for me because she was constantly and tirelessly giving up her time to rescue the most vulnerable um, animals when whether they be injured or orphaned so it was our entire upbringing was sort of centered around caring about the environment and how we could live more consciously and I was a massive nerd for science so I kind of pulled all of that <laughs> together to find a degree that that fit all of those little things that I wanted to check off in my list I, I love that it really is like in your blood to do yeah. this like it really you really had no other choice, like. Uh, absolutely. I know, I, I can't help it. I am a sucker for being outdoors and learning about science. So for me, I, there was no alternative. <laughs> I love, well, how could you not be, right? Like you get all these super cool experiences out in the wild. So how could you not be, especially living where you live? You have the ocean at your fingertips, like you're yeah. right there. So lucky. So lucky. So beautiful. So what was your first real like experience with scientific work or work doing research of some sort? Yeah. So I was doing my vet nursing when I was in high school and through that and through the wildlife volunteering, I actually got in touch with Johan Gustafsson, who was a PhD candidate at Griffith Uni at the time. And it was a very loose connection. It was a friend of a friend. And I think because I was 16 and I was so naive and I didn't really understand how inexperienced I was, it worked my advantage because <laughs> I put myself out there and I just showed up on the day and said, I'm ready. 
to work. Um, I knew he was going out doing hammerhead shark tagging. So I said, I really want to be involved. How can I help? And I'm so grateful that he took me on because I, I was starting from scratch. I didn't know anything about being a deckhand, about shark fishing oh or tagging. So he definitely gave me a really great opportunity there oh. and I kind of threw myself into every task that he held my way. So I, um, you know, cutting up the bait and doing all the fishing. I loved every second of it. I was hooked. And from that moment on, um, I got to go out on a few more shark expeditions um, with both hammerheads and bull sharks. And ever since then, I've sort of pestered him to, to always take me out um, whenever he's going out and doing his research. So, yeah, and that's been – he's finished his PhD now, um, moving on to some postdoc work, and I still – chase him up if he's got any sort of fishing expedition going on <laughs> so that I can get some more shark tagging action going. That was one of those opportunities that like being 16 and naive worked to your advantage, like not realizing that that age of 16 where you're like, no, I know everything. Absolutely. Really kind of when you didn't worked out for you. That's yeah, amazing. I, just, I wasn't afraid of making a fool of myself, I guess. So I just was like, yep, I'll do it. I'll go out. Any task on the boat I was willing to do. And I've learned so much since then that looking back, I think, oh, God, I had I had a lot ahead of me, 16-year-old Jazz. Um, but I've loved every second <laughs> and I've learned so much. No, so um, the way that we do okay, it, so there's, a, yeah, there's a lot of different ways um, that we can catch a shark. Um, but once we've got the shark, it's sort of a really time-sensitive thing. So as soon as we've, we've hooked a shark, we bring it um, either to the side of the boat or onto the boat, um, make sure that it's healthy, um, make sure that we're providing oxygenated water through the gills. Um, and then depending on the tracking method that we're using, sometimes we use sat tags, which are attached to the dorsal, and then sometimes we use acoustic tags, which are... Um, surgically inserted sort of like sub under the under the skin cool. yeah which is really interesting um we just pop the sharks in tonic and and do that procedure really quickly um but a lot of the work that um I did with Johan was with the satellite tags on the dorsal fin so and as soon as they're on and we've got all our measurements um they're straight back in the water and swimming off healthy and then we get some really exciting recordings um over the next you know sampling period so it's really exciting to see all this new information that we didn't previously have about these sharks um, in southeast Queensland or really in the eastern waters of, of Australia. So it's really exciting. Yeah, that's so cool that you and like the the under the skin one. That's so cool that while the shark's still in the water, like while this shark is still just be, like hanging out on the side of your boat, you're doing a quick little like surgery on it. And then the satellite tags also amaze me. Like it just they're both so cool that you can learn so much from these like not simple but like these aren't big mechanisms like these are yeah. like size of your hand kind of things and you can get so much data and so much information from them it never ceases to amaze me absolutely and Johan is continuing to work with more developed tags um, as he works through his research and it's so exciting to see all the different parameters that we can gain just from tagging these sharks and learn things that we previously didn't know about um, like where they move, depending on their age, time of day. It, it's really exciting stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear what comes of his future research as well. 
And working with Johan really kind of opened you up to more opportunities within the field of marine science, right? Yeah, for sure. So I was super lucky through Johan, I met a few other Griffith Uni researchers, uh, one of them being Dr. Olaf Meinecke. So he is great and he does humpback whale research um, and is the CEO of a non-for-profit called Humpbacks and High Rises. Um, so he, a big just, shout out to Olaf here. We love Olaf. Our absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Not that we like have favorites, but like Olaf, if you're <laughs> listening, you are our favorite. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that. <laughs> He's always um, telling me that whales are better than sharks. So, um, Which I mean, he's not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so yeah, I just seeing there were other things going on at Griffith. I was so excited because I didn't realize that I could be a part of these research opportunities as a volunteer, let alone to get paid for anything like this. So I did a lot of volunteering with HHR and jumped on board with the committee and went to all the meetings and um, their, their volunteers get to go out on whale watching vessels and work with whale watch operators to collect data on humpback whales, which is such a unique opportunity um, and a really great way of collecting citizen science data. Um, so yeah. I think that's, that's really cool. So I jumped on board with that. And then from, from doing that for um, a little while, I ended up being able to be a research assistant on some of his expeditions, which is just a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it's a really great space to create enthusiasm with people who are from the public who want to have an interaction with these incredible beings. But at the same time, we can collect really invaluable data for our research yeah. as well. And that includes like behavioral data, um, taking skin samples, um, taking aerial footage to look at size measurements with the drone. So we have a really unique opportunity to get a lot of data in that space while creating passion from um, other people as well who come from all over the world Absolutely. to jump on board those expeditions. So. The fact that you've gotten to go on one of the expeditions and I have not is uh, a little upsetting to me, but uh, forgivable. You will have to but chase him really, up. I, oh, I will be. He does not know this, but the next <laughs> one I'm coming on. Like, Absolutely. there's no question about it. He really doesn't get a say here. Like, I'm just showing up. Absolutely. (laughs) And when you learn about what HHR does with the surveys, like with the whale watching boats and with the citizen science, it really kind of sounds too good to be true. Like, you're like, oh, I get to hang out and look at whales and talk to people about whales? Twist my rubber arm. I know. Okay. That was exactly my thought. And as an undergrad, I was like, what amazing experience to get. Um, when, you know, going into marine science, you know you're going into a difficult field um, where you need to get heaps of volunteer experience. And this was, yeah, it was like a, a perfect opportunity to do so. So I, through Johan, met Olaf, chased him up and volunteered there as well. So then I was able to dip my toes in a few different waters, um, so to speak, as far as some research experience. So that was really exciting. I love that. I love, I've said this before that, One of the most important parts of marine science that's really underrated and doesn't get talked about a lot is this networking aspect. And I feel like it's, I'm not sure about like what you guys learned, but like, I remember being in high school and learning about like networking and picturing like people at a function in these like stuffy suits being like, hi, my name is this, and this is what I do. And hi, my name is this. 
No, absolutely not. It's literally like DMing someone on Instagram or seeing someone in the hallway and being like, hey, what do you do? Like it's can be so casual, but it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been so lucky just doing those sort of things and being around the uni. I got to meet so many different people and find out that the work that's happening behind those lab doors is incredible. And I was so eager to be involved in all of it. So I ended up, you know, chasing down a few people and just begging to be on board something because I realized what was happening at that university where I could just be sitting and like going to my lectures and and doing my classes, there was so much more that was being untouched by a lot of like myself and my um, fellow students. So yeah, it's, you're put in this really rich environment with um, some people who are at the top of their field and leading really novel research. So um, I was super lucky just to, to reach out to a few of those people and have them be so willing to take on an undergraduate student like me. So Absolutely. An amazing undergraduate student. I don't know what you're talking about. They are lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. And genuinely, what you're, the work you're doing every time you talk about it or I see you post about it, I'm just like, this is so cool. This girl is so cool. And this is oh. like, you are so smart to be doing Get this. Like it is, <laughs> I'm, this whole podcast is just going to be me complimenting you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's what you deserve. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, listeners, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm actually Jazz's like number one fan. So, you know, <laughs> it's mutual. It's completely mutual. <laughs> oh, oh, so what are you doing now? You're doing some really cool work with like toxicology, which I want you to teach me everything about toxicology because I don't know anything. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm learning so much still. I continue <laughs> to learn. Um, but I think that's because it's a really exciting field where with emerging contaminants, especially there's so much to learn and so much more that needs to be covered. Um, so it was again through Johan that I was put onto another PhD student, Julia Smith, who's doing shark toxicology. So she's looking at um, three main species. So she wants to look at great whites, bull sharks and tiger sharks. Um, and I offered to volunteer for her and helped out with a few necropsies and now and, and learn about what she was doing for her PhD. So what that involves with toxicology is it's the study of elemental or organic contaminants um, or even these compounds that may be essential in biological systems. But if they're altered by any anthropogenic activities, they can have a really serious effect on an individual's health or the entire population and the health of an entire ecosystem. So um, especially for sharks, as apex predators because they are really susceptible to biomagnification and bioaccumulation being at the top of that food chain so I thought this was a really really unique opportunity to look at that in um in the waters of southeast Queensland so mainly from um Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast and a few places in New South Wales as well just to establish what baselines should be um and also yeah. seeing if there are any unusual results with really high levels of contaminants that may be correlated to, to certain health parameters as well. So I'm absolutely in awe of her work. I think it is an incredible study. And from volunteering with her, doing a few necropsies, learning about shark anatomy in a really unique way, I was absolutely set on going down a similar path. Um, 
and I realized how much I loved toxicology. I loved physiology and, and biochemistry. So that kind of helped me style how I wanted to go about my undergrad as well. Um, and through meeting her, I then immediately reached out to heaps of different professors at the uni saying, is there any possible way I can do a project of my own? Um, and this was before I got, like I, I got into uni, but I hadn't started yet. And a lot of the initial response was, we love your enthusiasm, but maybe just hold off until honours or um, a master's and then definitely you can get on board. Um, but I was very determined. And luckily, um, Dr. William Bennett, who is a geochemist at, at Griffith Uni, um, and uh, incredible in his own right with his own research. He he took me on as well as Julia to be my supervisors so that I could do a project of my own. So now I'm in the third year finalising some of my results for a toxicology project in koalas, which ties in nicely to um, the previous experience. So now I'm in my third year finishing up um, my own koala toxicology project, uh, which ties in really nicely with the work that my mum did with koalas in rescue and rehabilitation and with my vet nursing as well so I got to do all my a, a lot of my vet nursing at Crumman Wildlife Hospital and um, at Labrador Vet Surgery and the work at Corumban uh, gave me the opportunity to learn a little bit about how to take blinds and samples from koalas so I was able to do that and uh, yeah it's really exciting that is so sweet that it ties back to what your mom did. Like that is just heartwarming to know yeah. that. Yeah. And it was Julia really that said, she said, you're working with koalas all the time. Um, and we noticed there was a really huge gap in koala toxicology. There is okay. one paper in, uh, in metals for koalas that is very old and, um, has a smaller sample size and so there's a real need to know what these baselines should be if we're wanting to monitor any of these contaminants in the future or understand um, certain physiological parameters in koalas that we're looking at right now and why they're so predisposed to disease and uh, facing uh, complications with a lot of reproductive tumors a lot of lymphoma um, and, and other cancers as well so there was a huge knowledge gap and we have a lot of koalas, thank thankfully, because of rescue groups that bring them in for treatment at Corumban Wildlife Hospital. Um, yeah. So rescue groups like the one that my mum's involved in, Wildcare Australia, are constantly going out and rescuing koalas from all sorts of different situations, whether that be disease or trauma-related or even um, orphaned baby joeys. So um, having them there is an incredible research opportunity as well so now we have samples from over 70 koalas um on from the wow. gold coast region yeah so it's really exciting and um we've just finished up analyzing all the elemental aspect of that so all our metal contaminants um and we're working on the organic contaminants in the next couple of weeks so i'm really excited to see what the results are i'm itching to get to those stats which is unusual um for me or a, a bio student to be excited about stats but cannot relate to that sentence <laughs> at all I avoid stats at all costs I know so. I know and I totally understand that but I'm so excited to see what we find and to be honest the anything that we find part of it, yeah oh yeah I'm I'm yeah I'm very much looking forward to seeing what 
what we find out about these little guys. Just just to learn more about the techniques involved in ecotox studies and um, and how to write papers that that can be published. Like I'm I'm just really excited to get all that really rich experience from this project. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's so first of all, koalas are not ocean animals, but we will forgive it for this one episode <laughs> yeah. just because it's you. Thank you. But with something like <laughs> when it's something like that, that's like you mentioned there was like one previous paper on it. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because like you want to fill that knowledge gap, but it's also like you're missing those like how to guides almost with like us with a area of study that has previous studies done that people have tested out different methods and this worked and this didn't, but yeah. you're kind of going into this blindly just being like, okay, let's try this, see if this works. And obviously you can pull from other like ecotox mm-hmm. uh, studies, but nothing specific to koalas, which is so cool and opens up such huge doors for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm so lucky. It's been such a good opportunity and under the guidance of Will and Julia, they've been incredible and and figuring out what works best for the samples that we have and and trying to get the best results from them. And also I think the access to a larger sample size has been really useful too because then we do have that wiggle room to make sure we've got yeah. the best methods in place and make sure we're doing all the right quality control and, and analysis processes to ensure that we have really substantial results. So... But yeah, definitely yeah. writing literature reviews and finding background information was interesting uh, when I began, especially because I had no idea really how to even begin a literature review. Yeah. Um, so it's been a huge learning curve and I look back on some of my initial writings in shame, but I, I just know that it's all a learning opportunity and I'm growing and, and hopefully will continue to grow um, in the next couple of years as I go into some further research down the track absolutely absolutely so many big things to come from you I don't even doubt it but when you're taking these samples from the koalas like I follow you on Instagram obviously as everyone should so (laughs) I see all these like little samples of like blood or tissue like what are you taking how do you take these samples like what is like a day in your life taking samples and looking at samples like Yeah, so it's really, it's a little bit hectic in koala season um, because there are a lot of koala hospital admissions down at Corumban. Their team is incredible and they are working around the clock to rehabilitate and treat so many koalas every year. Um, So what will happen is the Corumban team will call me when a koala has been brought in for treatment. Um, and if they're in a viable condition and they're able to be treated, then what we'll do is we'll go ahead, we'll take some blood and we'll take um, blood both for metals and organic contaminants to analyse. Um, and, of course, the vet makes a decision as to whether they're um, viable for sampling and, and whether it's going to be safe. We don't take a lot of blood. We take a very small amount. So um, usually it ties in nicely with the veterinary diagnostics that's already going on. Um, and then unfortunately a lot of koalas that are brought in, um, on, on the Gold Coast are in a really bad way. So we have a lot of terminal patients, um, that come in and just, despite the vet's incredible ability and all the resources that they could need, some koalas just aren't able to be treated. Um, 
and they undergo euthanasia under the veterinary decision. And while this is so heartbreaking, especially because koalas are really struggling at the moment in southeast Queensland, um, sometimes euthanasia gets a really, really tough rap. Um, but sometimes it really is the best option for our wildlife. Um, yeah. We have chlamydial disease and retroviral diseases absolutely rampant um, in koala populations, and they struggle from a did lot. Did you just say? Did you just say chlamydia? Yes. So that is the biggest problem for koalas here. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yes. Very interesting. I know it's serious, but to just say that a koala has chlamydia, just going to take mm-hmm. me a second to be okay with that. That's okay. Very I know. I think I've been living in koala world that it's so normal <laughs> to to talk about you chlamydia. Just <laughs> you just breezed right by that. I was like, did I mishear this or did she really just say chlamydia? Yeah. So, And it's really bad. So it's not transmissible to humans. Um, but it is the same strain in, yeah, it is the same strain in cattle and in dogs as well. Um, and it is a sexually transmitted disease. So, um, because their habitats are quite, um, isolated as well because of a lot of development that's happened on the Gold Coast, um, the breeding situation, every breeding season means that it's really easily transmitted, um, between individuals. So they can either get like a conjunctivital form uh, or reproductive or respiratory form as well. Um, the conjunctivital form is the one that's most easily treated, um, but particularly for female koalas, what they can develop is cystitis and ovarian cysts, and they unfortunately are, are not treatable. So the only way to treat that is through um, uh, removal, so like a desexing procedure, um, yeah. which is really difficult and dangerous. And some, some vets up on the sunny coast can do it, um, but then as well, you are releasing a sterile animal back into the environment, even if they do recover. So it is a really tough call. Um, and why it's really important that these animals that do have to be euthanized can be used for science because we're given this really unique opportunity to, um, we have this animal that ha- has been euthanized. Now let's make the most of this unfortunate situation yeah. and see if we can learn more about them. And I was really lucky to run into, yeah, and I was really lucky to run into a few different scientists while I was taking my samples who are doing other incredible studies as well as far as learning about koala reproduction, learning about developing a chlamydia vaccine and and doing some some really exciting novel research. So um, it's good to see that despite the the situation, there is a lot of good science that's coming out, out the other side. Absolutely. Kind of like the the bright side of a very dark side because obviously yeah. you don't want to lose these animals, but it's happening, so not make the best of it, but like make it worth it. Give it a purpose as to what oh, absolutely. for something and good to come out of it. For sure. And it's really I mean, without being able to analyze organs such as the kidney and the liver, we wouldn't be able to get that full picture of where contaminants are sequestered in the body or how they're having physiological effects because a lot of the koalas that we did open up for necropsy did have kidney ulceration and liver tumours that weren't really picked up in diagnostics um, because they were um, not 
maybe secondary but maybe even primary to the the cystitis or uh, secondary infection or susceptibility to chlamydial disease so that's kind of the links that we're trying to look at and see if there is a possibility that any of these contaminants could could damage these these vital organs and also if this renders them susceptible to to further detriment so further disease yeah. or um or malnutrition things like that absolutely it's kind of wild to me that like koalas are such a prevalent animal like i've heard about them since i was a child and i don't even live in australia and yet there's still so much we don't know about them despite them being this like massively popular animal absolutely and because they're so charismatic as well they're such stewards for the environment that we do have on the gold coast and i know that um down south in in victoria and south australia the koala populations are that they face different issues um there's not as much of the issue with chlamydia and um they are quite healthy but in southeast queensland from redlands down to down to the gold coast they are they are really struggling and um a lot of habitat degradation has led to uh, a lack of diversity in their genetics and mm-hmm. um, then when we have other issues because they're living in quite urban environments that that may be introduced by by toxicology and um, environmental pollutants and we really need to get a grip on on what these issues are and how much they're actually affecting koalas so that if these parameters change in the future we know by how much and what measures need to be taken to to secure the futures of of koalas on the Gold Coast and, yeah. and in Queensland. So that's so I'm glad this work is being done now. I wish it had been a little earlier, but I'm glad it's happening now. Yeah, me too. And it is um it, it's easy to see all the all the bad news and, and get really upset. But I think by meeting some of the scientists that were also working and, and the veterinarians and the nurses and the wildlife carers that are all working towards protection of koalas that it's also really um, exciting to see that so many people can come together and yeah. and care about the species that, that are most vulnerable. So, Yeah, absolutely. So back to what you're actually doing. These little <laughs> vials of blood that I see or tissue, yes. what do you do with those? Like, yeah. how, how do you get information from that? Yeah, so my second favorite thing is lab work. Um, I love being in the lab. It's I find it so exciting. Um, so depending on whether it's bloods or tissues, we prepare it in a way. Um, so for metal analysis, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, because I'm I'm still learning the organic contaminant techniques, and and we'll be processing my tissue shortly. But for metals, what we do is we will either freeze dry them or homogenize them in another way. Um, before we microwave acid digest them. So um, we add a few different chemicals, uh, a few different acids to digest them in a Mars 6 microwave. It's not your conventional microwave oven. Um, (laughs) It's a little bit different. (laughs) It heats them right up though and keeps them at a constant temperature. So So you're telling me this isn't an experiment I could run like in my kitchen with my microwave? (laughs) Unfortunately not, (laughs) although I... Yeah. I'm so used to working in the lab that when I refer to a microwave, that's what I think of. And so when I'm telling people, they're like, you microwave up the tissues? That's so weird. <laughs> no, no, it's a little bit different to that. Um, so, yeah, we, we homogenize them. They end up through the microwave 
uh, digestion process, they end up being liquid and we dilute them and run them through ICPMS, which is inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, um, which is really exciting. And that's how we quantify exactly how much of each element is in that sample. Um, and it's really accurate and it uses a mass, mass to charge ratio. Um, and then we're able to look at a really broad spectrum spectrum of elements at the one time and see how much is is in that, that sample. Is so cool. That's yeah, unreal. I love it. It is unreal. I remember like learning about different chemical um, analysis techniques in high school and being so excited about like ICP and and learning about all the different types. And now that I get to work with one, it is really exciting. I feel like a You're doing a this scientist. in an undergrad too. Like really, like you're starting early. You're getting in there. Like that's so cool. Oh, I'm so lucky. I, I still have to pinch myself sometimes. I mean, it's a lot of work. I'm, I can be really exhausted sometimes still trying to do my undergrad. But um, I look back on it once once the whole round of lab work's complete or once my exams are finished at the end of a trimester and think, this is really exciting and I'm so lucky to, to be Absolutely. involved with it. Yeah. Well, you were saying the other day, you were like studying, you were working and you were doing this project. And I was like, how does this girl do it? Like you are superwoman <laughs> with what you do. So oh. I just hope you understand that you are oh my goodness. unreal with balancing all of this. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, sleep takes a, takes a hit sometimes, <laughs> um, but that's okay. I mean, I, I love everything that I'm doing. I can't complain about any aspect of it and I genuinely enjoy it while I'm there. So um, I probably can work on my work-life balance, but that'll come <laughs> at a later time. Eventually. Hopefully. Eventually. If you just get yeah. ahead in the work like now, then you'll have more time for like life later. There. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I tell myself that anyway <laughs> <laughs> me too it's kind of a problem yeah. Like, yeah I'm like oh my friends are going out I just need to do like two hours more work and then like part of me is like no go out I'm like ah oh, but work <laughs> like I know and it's, it's so hard. hard because it, especially with your podcast you speak to so many incredible women and I listen to it each week and I hear about the amazing stuff that's going on and it's just all that more inspiring to, and you think god there's so much more I can be doing or there's so much more that yes. I want to get experience in so um yeah I keep putting my eggs in lots of different baskets and um trying out a lot of different things um but I I, I enjoy it all I love science I love the ocean and the environment and I have always been this way so I don't think anything's going to change anytime soon <laughs> it's the perfect way to spend your spare time but absolutely yes talking to the different women on the podcast sometimes like I'll like finish recording and I'm like oh I'm really tired like I should go to sleep and then I'm like no please like do your work like if you want to be as cool <laughs> as them and it, it definitely yeah. there's definitely some like imposter syndrome when you talk to this many people oh. or even if you're like listeners that are like listening to this like oh like if someone in undergrad is listening to this and they're like oh I haven't done nearly as much as she has like am I on the wrong track no absolutely not no way. like yeah there's no such like there obviously is such thing as imposter syndrome but no one's an imposter like you're all you're meant to be here you're meant Absolutely. to be doing exactly what you're doing and if you're liking it then that's all that matters yeah so true and I'm so glad you brought that up because it is such a such a prominent issue especially when you're really starting off in your career and starting off as 
um, as a student thinking, oh my gosh, I, I don't belong here. I don't know why I've been given this opportunity. But if you're willing to work hard, regardless of what stage you're at, um, whether you start early or start later or um, at any point in your life, if you're willing to put in the work, then you're just as deserving. And all the people that I've had the pleasure of working with are so down to earth, so willing to give you a hand up um, that it's been like yes. a really rich environment to be able to do all this stuff in because I've been encouraged Absolutely. and um, yeah, been given ample opportunity to, to step up and, and do more. So I'm, I'm super lucky in that. Way. I think it is something to be said about the field that we're in. Like, obviously no, I'm not, everyone has the same experience, but it is a very like friends help friends kind of field. Like mm-hmm. if I saw an internship that was like ecotoxicology, I'd be like, oh, that's not for me. But I'd send it to you and be like, hey, check this out. Check out this opportunity yeah. and like pass yeah. that along because it's there's room for everyone. And mm-hmm. it's just, there's no timeline for it. Like there's yeah. no timeline that every single person follows. Like when Absolutely. I graduated my undergrad, I had friends that had like publishing papers because they did mm-hmm. uh, Canada's different like we do our honors like within our undergrad so like mm-hmm. they did their honors within their undergrad were publishing papers and I didn't do an honor so I was mm-hmm. I graduated without publishing a paper and I was like yeah am I behind is anyone gonna want to work with me and like didn't have the best grades and luckily I found Olaf and he said like I don't care about your grades I know you're a hard worker we'll figure this yeah. out like yeah. I know the work you do and I was like Olaf thank you so much Oh, I promise I'll do better. Like, no, and you're just, such a valuable no... asset to them too. So you're so right. It's There's a space for everyone as long as you're willing to like put a bit of work yes. in. Everyone, like there's there's a need for it. Um, there's so much that we there's don't know. There's space for everyone. Yes, yeah. yes. And even Absolutely. if it's not like if, re- if research isn't what you want to do, if you don't, don't want to make these like groundbreaking discoveries, there's always needs for techs and for... Oh people just there's always needs for so many different like spots in these fields like there's room for everyone it's just absolutely broad everyone can come exactly and even just I know just spreading awareness and even changing the way that I don't know you live to be a little bit more conscious or or just bringing it up with like your friends and family like there's always it's something um with science and particularly with the environment it's something that we all have in common even if not all of us really um, may have this this same passion that, say, you and I would have. Um, it's something yeah. we all have in common. We all live here. <laughs> so we all have to make sure that we we do our best. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's really exciting that we can all be so collaborative um, and bring together, like, a whole bunch of different skills to have the same, have the same goal. Absolutely. This is actually a perfect little segue for my favourite question of the podcast, if there was a young woman listening or a young girl listening and she was thinking this whole thought, like whole episode, I want to be just like her. I want to do what she does. I want to be just like her in every way. What would be your piece of advice for her? Yeah, I think my number one tip is just put your hand up. Don't worry about not getting picked. Don't worry about failing. You're not going to know unless you don't just give it a go. So I always like volunteered for absolutely everything. Of course, there were so many things that I, I didn't get picked for. I didn't make the cut. Um, but if you're willing to try, then there's going to be the perfect opportunity that comes along and someone who sees your dedication, your passion, and will take you under their wing. And 
that's where it all where the ball starts rolling and you'll find from there as as I did you meet so many other different people who are like-minded or in the same field um who will give you a helping hand so just just give it a go it's it's just about being willing to volunteer and put put a bit of work in and then being able to have all these amazing experiences and opportunities so yeah that's my my advice I love that piece of advice that is absolutely just I love that that's the best advice ever like it can be so nerve-wracking to put yourself in a situation that's Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and like out of your comfort zone yeah but that's where the growth happens like that's where you really learn like who you are and what you Mm -hmm. want to do put yourself out there say just be like hey you want me you want me you do and people are gonna say no people are gonna absolutely be like no I don't want you who cares someone else wants you Exactly. And that's the thing as well. I always joke that I hassled my supervisors into taking me on board um, for this project, but it has been so such an incredible experience and I've just learned so much and I know we've all got a lot out of it and, um, and are excited for, for what's to come in the future. So yeah, just put yourself out there, go for it. Why not? I love that. So if people wanted to follow along with you on social media, keep up with the koalas and what you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, so I have an Instagram. It's just jazzjs.rasmussen, my last name. Um, and you'll find me there uh, with all of my crazy adventures. So check us <laughs> a follow. And I'll try, I'm trying to get more into science com and doing stuff on social media. So maybe I'll branch out from Instagram, but for now that's all I've got. <laughs> but it is one of the most fun Instagrams. Like I, those, when I say I see vials of koala blood and tissue, I do. It's that's where I get all my koala information is your Instagram. So, <laughs> well, I'm, I feel very privileged that you come to me. <laughs> Any questions, my, account, my way. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Jazz will be tagged on all of our social medias as well. So make sure you're going to follow her along. And thank you for joining me in being a water woman. I had so much fun getting to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. I feel so honored. It's, it's such a dream of mine to, to be on this podcast. So thanks for having me. What can I say? I love making dreams come true. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening and until next week, stay salty.